Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance, and HR, to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you are a returning subscriber, welcome. Hope you're having an amazing day. You look amazing. You see what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts. You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So hit that subscribe button and follow us as we elevate ethics and compliance to the strategic lever it's supposed to be. I am here today with Eric Young. Uh, Eric, how are you, man? Doing great. Thanks for having me. I've been, uh, I followed you on LinkedIn for a long time, read some of your work. I, you know, you're a massive thought leader in the compliance space. And I was super uh, excited to get you on here and to pick your brain and see what kind of tactics we can pull out and, you know, give to our community to help them elevate. So, um, so welcome. Um, Thank you. All guests get another bonus welcome, by the way. So there's a lot of welcomes <laughs> going on here. That's okay. <laughs> so why don't we just dive right in? Um, you have a really interesting career. I think your path to where you're at is super interesting. So maybe we can start there and then we can get into some of your thought leadership on really how to turn this function that in the past has been kind of this check the box, don't get sued into something that can really help elevate the, uh, the impact of an organization in its pursuit sure. of its mission. So, so how did you jump into this game? How did you wind up where you're at? I've been a career, com career compliance officer, which in itself is probably rare, but I graduated at the age of 20 from Columbia University in New York um, as an economist or an economics major. And um, it was therefore easy to uh, work for the government, uh, particularly the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in this case. And my primary job was to analyze proposals from US banks wanting to go overseas or foreign banks wanting to come into the US. And it wasn't called compliance then, but at the same time, what we analyzed is not just the financials and the capital, uh, but more importantly, the management, the culture, and the strategy of these institutions that want to expand that were not necessarily written in law, whether they could or could not do it. So many institutions would push the envelope, look for loopholes, uh, and they were quite bold about it. And so we had to look at did management have the right culture and the ability and the financial strength to carry out new activities, which were new ground? And that was exciting for me because I always want to learn and understand strategy, but then to apply whether banks could comply with these loopholes and yet still be profitable and responsible um, was really what motivated me. And then, uh, long story short, I've had a long career with JP Morgan, uh, four foreign banks, uh, GE, all in compliance, uh, and head of compliance for S&P Global Ratings. So I love it. Uh, I'm always learning. I'm still doing it in many ways. And I'm now uh, hoping to, to teach future compliance leaders. Um so let's go back to that Fed situation, because there's kind of some interesting stuff in that, I think. So, you know, this is, you know, compliance broadly is kind of a new function, right? A hundred years ago, it definitely didn't even have the name, although there was right. probably some compliant-like activities going on, right? But you're in this, you know, in this time period where you have to assess these risks. And I find it interesting that at that sort of super nascent stage of compliance, right? Yeah. Um, you had to look at obviously that sort of regulatory aspect that, you know, those harder things, but then just you sort of naturally said, 
well, we need to sort of look at some of these other things as well, some of these softer things. We need to look at the culture. We need to look at, are these people going to be able to, you know, to your point, are they going to be able to remain profitable if we make this change? Are they going to aggressively pursue these loopholes that, you know, kind of violate the spirit of whatever that, you know, loophole is within, right? Um, so sort of as it was like ill-defined, you were looking at these multifacets and these multiple dimensions. It seems like as we got into compliance 1.0, when it was really like, okay, compliance is a thing, your job is to make sure the CEO doesn't get sued. That, that scope that you kind of described seems to sort of collapse into just the objective things, just the regular, you know, just the check the box things. And it seems like as we move into this compliance 3.0, where we're talking about effectiveness now, yeah. that scope is naturally expanding out to kind of cover some of these other dimensions that are harder to, you know, get good data on. Mm -hmm. um, you know what I'm saying? They're more subjective and stuff like that. It's just kind of a, it's kind of a fascinating, I don't know if it's full circle or if it's just sort of dipped and then now it's coming back up and as it's now grown more to become, you know, more, more mature, we understand that we have to look at these other, other dimensions that are maybe tangential or related, but not sort of core to compliance. Yes, and, and well said, and particularly because some things haven't changed. Are people good? Are people bad? And it's not as binary as, as that, of course. It's very gray in terms of conduct, behavior, culture. But other things, even when I first started out, uh, the Justice Department, uh, we worked closely with them around, are there antitrust considerations? We also looked at, um, is the proposal, whether in the US or domestically, going to serve the public interest, but more importantly, the community's interest, particularly for for low uh, income uh, communities. So yeah. these are topics that we hear very much about today. But as we evolve, and uh, well said, compliance 1.0 versus 3.0, um, what has changed? Technology, for example, the speed of information coming in, going out, and reputational damage being done in nanoseconds as opposed to Pony Express, uh, yeah, you know, days and, and weeks. So uh, the risks are much higher, but in some ways the underlying foundations haven't changed, which is the right culture, the right ethics, um, uh, doing the, the right thing, and not only meeting the letter of the law or check the box, as you say, but the spirit of the law and ethics and, and conduct. Uh, so it is full circle, but now the volatility, the speed, if you will, of the damage that can be done and therefore the preventative measures are all the more critical. Yeah, that's a great point. It's like the stakes are higher now or something. Yes. I mean, that nanosecond reputational damage that we see happen freaking all the time is happening all the time. And yes. you don't know how close you are to your point. You don't know how close you, know, you are as an organization to that same thing, you know, getting bit by that same snake. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And and all it takes is a rumor or or some yeah. type of negative fact and, and people being people will assume the worst and that they're guilty until proven innocent. But even if proven innocent, it could take weeks, months, millions and damages to uh, to prove innocence. And, and as you know, deferred prosecution agreements or other settlements, oftentimes the firm or even the individual will not have to admit guilt or, or innocence, right. but the damage is done. Yeah, the damage is done because the public opinion is judge and jury, you know what I mean? Exactly, exactly. So, so you made this, I mean, you've worked in a lot of really cool organizations. 
that have these complex, you know, regulatory challenges or these complex sort of problems that are coming down down the pike that you have to sort of sort through. You made this transition to GE, which obviously multinational, super complex organization. I mean, it's a thousand different businesses sort of under one umbrella. Yep. Yep. Talk to me a little bit about how you made the transition into teaching. What like what was that like? What kind of prompted that? And what are sure. you finding on the sort of the academic side of the house that's like more fulfilling than what you were finding on the in-house side of the house? So my parents were professors, so I think it's in my DNA. And then my wife says, all I do is pontificate, so I like to (laughs) (laughs) teach. And I love giving back, Um, particularly in this case, you know, about what I'm passionate about, which is compliance, but ethics as as well. And and I love uh, what you and your brother and, and what Compliance Mind does around focusing on ethics and the human nature of, of things, because that's really what it boils down to. Right. So teaching is really about humanity. It's, it's about giving back and uh, contributing to make the world not only a safer place, to, to sound a bit cliche-ish, but that's the focus of ESG today. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've got a lot of years experience that I think I love to share, pontificate, now it's the perfect environment. Um, But there are really important things to learn. I learned from the students as as well because uh, it is full circle, but they're the social media experts, they're the technology experts, they're the future. So it's very symbiotic. Yeah, I mean, at this kind of stage of the game and given the kind of complex landscape that sort of ethics and compliance tries to, you know, navigate and control and whatever, uh, traverse across, having that kind of conversational style, you know, teaching mechanism or whatever, that environment that it sounds like you've created there, sounds like it can be very symbiotic. And there's a yes. lot of sort of sharpening of the sword or the, you know, ironing sharp, sharpening iron when you can knock down those sort of generational differences and get those inputs and fin- fit them into our frameworks and see, you know, what kind of comes out the other end. Exactly, exactly. I like to say I'm a leader of compliance, but also a follower of compliance, because there's a ton to learn from. And just going back to the career, and it's my advice for compliance or ethical experts, as as I like uh, the the phrase that you guys use, is, is it's never boring. It's always changing. And, And compliance and ethics experts are in the management of change. That's what they do, whether externally or internally. And it's helping the board understand to anticipate new change, particularly as banking and commerce, and we'll get into this later, those industries are really converging because of technology. Those lines are very blurry, but the risks are are probably higher. Yeah, they probably are higher. Um, Something you just said was pretty interesting. that, you know, as these things converge, they begin to, I want to push this a little bit because I want to talk about that paper. But I mean, that blurring of the lines leads to, I mean, it's just, it's the sort of symptom, right, of the change, right? The change can be catalyzed by technology or regulation or something. There's this wave of change washing across our economy and our businesses and so forth. Mm -hmm. And as those lines blur, to your point, who's standing in the gap to navigate it all, who's standing in the, the crow's nest above the ship, right? It's yes. these ethics and compliance folks. And I just, the way you framed that and you said, hey, we're, what did you say? You said we're like the arbiters of change or we're the, we're the managers change. Managers of change. Yeah, the managers of change. 
like it's you know like everything that's like profound it's always so so simplistic mm-hmm. that's such that's so simple but it's so profound because if we are the managers of change and if we're you know unless we're working in a some kind of a massive factory that just has one person that can manage the whole thing right like it's a people business every business totally. is full of people if exactly. we're going to manage we have to figure out how to manage people, how to do that behavioral influence piece, how to actually change the behaviors that uh, we're trying to affect in an effective way. Um, and that that expansion, I mean, I mean, you know, maybe I'm just kind of re, re, repeating what we were talking about earlier, but that but what we're talking about is, is sort of an expansion of the mandate or a dimensional sort of uh, expansion. You know what I'm saying? It's not totally. just, hey, I need to make sure that I have the right policy in place. Um, that is, you know, fits all the regulations and I can understand this complex web of uh, rules and laws, but how am I translating this foreign language into an individual's language so that they can actually digest what we're talking about and change their behavior? And then even if they can take the next step further and become that, you know, we talk about internet of things a lot, right? The benefit of that whole thing is that there's a bunch of sensors all over everything. So if something goes wrong, you'll be notified and say, oh, the printer's out of ink, or I got to put more pop in the pop machine, right? A way better sensor is a human. So let's activate all these sensors in our organization. Let's, and you know, I I can just rant and rave about this whole thing, but there's so many like positive knock-on effects that come with it because we're not just by rote trying to program, you know, automatons. We have human beings that we need to sort of pick the lock on and it's always an information transfer and an influence game. And just by tying it back to that, to that mandate, we're change managers. Well, nope. for change to take place, what's going to happen? Well, that's on my plate now. I, I just need to account for that in my execution of my job, you know? And sensors is the right word, motion sensors, whatever the case may be, because if you think about it, change is external, not just laws and regs, but the environment, society, pandemic, uh, and it's also internal um, around reorganizations, acquisitions, new management, um, compliance, therefore, and ethics even is not static. It's very dynamic. So it's a matter of keeping first the board at the top, board of directors, because they have a duty of loyalty to, let's call it beyond shareholders because it's too short term, um, yeah. but stakeholders and, and compliance yeah. and the board have a great opportunity strategically to partner to hold management accountable because the board and compliance are the most personally liable, but it's because of the, the actions or inactions of management who are actually the least accountable the least culpable, but with the most authority to make decisions that can affect change, not necessarily in a good way. So the sensors, I I love that concept because that implies that there's someone looking at that flag going up because of the sensor. And ultimately it's the human judgment, the subjectivity of action, or inaction that is still required. The machine is a tool, the decision is human. Tell me, tell me some more about that. The machine is a tool, the decision is human. So a, a hammer or a screwdriver, you can build a cathedral with it, okay, but first it. it takes someone's vision and a human with robotics and some help. Maybe yeah. the automobile is a better analogy, but a cathedral is more beautiful. Um, and it's more ethical. Let's think about, you know, the purpose. Yeah. <laughs> um, but 
but it it still takes humans to to make decisions and that's really what it's all about is decisions right ones and wrong ones and the consequences behind why do you think it's taken 20 years 30 years for this thing to come full circle i mean just to use the parlance that we've been using in this this discussion like human, why did it, like like why would it dip down and be less effective than the sort of the sort of broader scoped approach that you guys were taking at the Fed back in the day? Um, it, whether it's compliance or even just managing ethical behavior, it's it, it's a science, but it's also an art and it's evolving. Let's let's start there. Se- okay. Second, um, and that you know. A lot of colleges, universities, they teach you philosophy classes. And I used to say, you know, oh, great. Now I know what to say at cocktail parties. Um, exactly. Done <laughs> smart. Yeah. All right. But philosophically, and, and they teach a lot, you know, a lot of these things, is people are, they're inherently good or they're inherently bad. And, and I've called me jaded. People are more inherently bad than good. And part of it is society, part of it is just the maximization of profit, which drives human activity and, and culture. So let's use that as a foundation. Well, I mean, you could even go before that, right? Because I didn't have to teach my kids how to lie. They just kind of knew. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But all the um, things you're talking about are probably better foundations in terms of this conversation. But yeah. And, and so what's evolved is the ethical aspect of it and and putting it under the umbrella of compliance. Now compliance, people think it's tick the box or it's just overhead. Ethics has a broader meaning and therefore, you know, people are ethical or they're not. And that's been around for centuries and generations. So in that sense, it's pulling it all together. That's what's evolved. And now it's a matter of packaging it, if you will, I hate to call it that, for the board to understand that it's it's an intangible that needs to be measured. And that's not easy to do. And that's where the tools come in with artificial intelligence. But then again, what does it mean? And how do we tell it as compliance heads as a story that there's danger ahead or danger diminishing. And that's that could be the risk manager, but um, it really should come from compliance because compliance, it's more than laws and regs. It's we yeah. own the code of ethics, but it's but management and employees that have to then live it. And, and that's yeah. the dynamic. Um, yeah, so Hopefully I'm not being too philosophical. No, you're not. I just, I don't know which, which way to go to it. Like there's three different things I want to say right now. So sure. um, as that thing has, has progressed, right. Um, as this thing has started to expand, as compliance has become this broader thing. I mean, you're talking about an evolution and we're talking about almost like, you know, as you grow, you kind of like be, you're like, oh, I guess I'm this kind of a thing. I'm this kind of a person or something. Maybe that's what's really happening with this as this sort of outgrowth of, um, you know, really maybe, you know, the, the melding of sort of uh, ethics and compliance together, because to your point, it's not just the rules and reg- regulations. We own the code of conduct. Well, we're talking about conduct. Conduct is behavior. Behavior is done mm-hmm. by people. You know, the sum of all those behaviors come together to form the culture of the organization. That positive or negative culture is going to reinforce itself one way or another to push toward better outcomes or worse outcomes or whatever. But that sort of 
uh, that I don't want to call it a reimagining. I'll, I'll just use your word, the evolution of compliance yeah. to understand that that added dimension uh, is part of our purview or part of our scope, I think has presented some of these additional challenges, which you're talking about. Because yes. just to use the sort of yin-yang analogy, if you know compliance is the yin and that's all objective, this is simplified, okay, obviously. Mm -hmm. I like it. And it's all subjective, softer, amorphous things. Mm -hmm. And as we move from just the objective data driven piece, hey, am I compliant? Yes or no, to hey, how is the culture of my organization? How are people actually behaving? Do they have the information they need to drive those right behaviors and make those right decisions, as you were saying? It now moves from hey, here's a spreadsheet with, with numbers on it to, to your point, telling some kind of a story to the board to get them. Yes you got to bring them along with you to your point. You got to totally, and they have to care about it. So we have all these new challenges on the compliance front. We're right. We're stepping into this new decade. We're largely now a knowledge work economy. Obviously there's still industrialization, but it's not the freaking strong mm -hmm. force anymore. It's people, mm -hmm. right? People are their work and so forth in this new environment. As these, as this scope expansion has occurred, we are now presented with new challenges at a time where technology is going faster, where risks, you know, the chasm off the side of, you know, the, uh, the drop off the side of the cliff on the mountain that we're driving along is just yes. getting farther and farther to the ground, right? So the stakes are higher. And now we've added this new element to the mix to say, I have to be persuasive. I have to have influence yes. over these people who are, you know, more liable or whatever. And it's, I'd love for you to kind of speak to how you've seen people struggle with bringing on that new, or like, you know, exhibit that new skill, that right? Message. Yes. Yeah. And then I'd also like to kind of circle back to after that, um, I'd like to circle back to the point that you made that you have the compliance team that has high level of like personal liability. You have the board of directors who have a high level of personal li liability. You have the person who for all intents and purposes, perhaps may have the most sort of implicit power in the organization. They might mm -hmm. have this, the most explicit power, yet they don't have that personal liability. I'd love to kind of talk to the type of Kind of moral hazard environment that that can kind of create yes. and the challenges that the board and the, the compliance folks end up having as they get pinched in between. So I'll start there and, and it's in, going to be uh, in, in my book uh, where there's an exhibit, I call it the corporate accountability uh, pyramid. So okay. if you can visualize a pyramid with a board at the top and compliance at the bottom and then management in the middle as the third layer, if you will, but as the first line of defense. So as you're describing and, and as I have, it's the management in the middle that's got to, on the one hand, set the tone, but they're the ones that are also paving the way for future liability against the board and, and compliance. Yeah. The added challenge, particularly in this cost-cutting environment, is compliance is viewed as a tick-the-box overhead and not adding strategic value. So getting compliance to even have FaceTime with the board is a challenge, particularly if they report into the general counsel or the general counsel happens to also be the chief compliance officer, they might not have the passion or the perspective that ethics and compliance is something that needs airtime with the board. So, so the agenda time is either non-existent or two minutes. And oftentimes I would go to the board and I would be allotted 20 minutes, but everyone else would just ramble on before me and they, the board would say, okay, you have to condense it in 30 seconds or a, a minute. <laughs> so talk fast. Yeah. And that's where the, the storytelling and the thematic uh, ability, uh, which compliance officers are not always good at. That's right. Um, is, is how do you pull 
lots of unrelated information and colors and dashboards, but tell a story that will resonate with the board exactly as you say. So it's, it's regular dialogue, independent dialogue, sometimes without management. And if you look closely at the Department of Justice evaluation of corporate compliance programs, for years they've been saying compliance and the board should have that dialogue. And, yeah. and uh, even going back to the FCPA and the sentencing guidelines and lots of other literature, it says compliance should have a direct line into the board. But the reality is the gatekeepers, corporate secretary, general counsel, and others don't let compliance talk to the board directly. And, it's so and interesting a, because it's not like the board doesn't have other sort of relationships where they get that that time, that specialized time, like any board I've ever been on or been a part of or whatever, like anytime there's a financial audit, those auditors are going to have independent time with that board. It might not be at an actual board meeting. It's going to be a sort of a special session or something where the auditors are going over the report. They're going over their recommendations, the lack of controls, whatever, whatever they're finding. And I'm not saying that every single board, you know, every single board member on every single one of these is just licking their pencil and like ready to take notes that they're so engaged. Right. I'm just saying that it, it happens every single year. So how, what is the argument against having a 30 minute meeting, a two hour meeting yep. with compliance directly, perhaps even without management involved exactly. to get a clear look about what's going on here. I don't understand. I, you know, I'm just kind of navel gazing a little bit, but like, why doesn't the board want to do it? Are they just too busy? They, they're golfing. Why doesn't the compliance people, why aren't, aren't they pushing it? Is it, is it a organization? This is all broad brushstrokes, but like, is no, this no. organizational politics at large that they just can't pierce through the veil and get that FaceTime with the guys? So part of it is, and it's still a U.S. phenomenon. Other co- countries have separated the CEO from the chairman role. So if the CEO ah. is also the chairman, then they control the board. So then right. the question is how independent are the board, and this is where diversity and inclusion and co- good corporate governance separates the CEO and the chairman. There's lots of moving parts and individual components to ultimately address the problem. And, and my book talks about this. I have six recommendations among other things, but, but so that's one challenge. The second is um, in a lot of my research and interviewing of people, uh, including recruiters, I, I asked them, what does it take to have, to your point exactly, board members understand and appreciate not just compliance, but the reputational damage under the sentencing guidelines. Yeah. Because the board, if you think about it, they spend more time uh-huh. on litigation and remediation rather than being uh, enlightened, as I call it, to learn about the sentencing guidelines and what not to do. Because by the time it gets to the sentencing guidelines, it's too late. By the time it gets to enforcement and litigation, it's too late. So the board should be holding management with compliance with help accountable as to what, what can we do to prevent the, the fan from hitting? I don't know how yeah. R-rated I can be on this on this. I say go nuts show. here, go nuts. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I mean, before it hits the fan, yes. point, to your point, but I just don't understand. I mean, we all read the same Wall Street Journal. We all read the same newspaper. Like we all see the same compliance uh, violations that wreck organizations, that wreck their reputation and stuff. Is it, do you think it's the, the, you know, everything bad happens to the other guy type of fallacy? Is it part just the laziness? Part of it's hubris. Part of it is, is um, at least during the early stages of, of uh, COVID, just 
triage. But, you know, if you look at my posts around that time, I, I would say, don't forget compliance. Now's actually the best time to enlighten the board because whether it's fraud or other operational problems, that's when the wheels start falling off. And, the, and you might not even know the wheels have fallen off until years later. And a tangible example is the financial crisis of 10, 15 years ago. I can't believe how long ago I know. it was. But it, took, <laughs> it, took, it felt like yesterday. For real. Um, it took years, if you think about it, of enforcement actions after the uh, financial crisis with LIBOR, with foreign exchange, and the whole concept of conduct because the laws were probably being followed, but it was just bad behavior, which is, was hard to monitor because it was a bunch of buddies amongst different right. institutions talking to each other but not being monitored. So the lesson learned is, have we learned our lesson? Second is- um, <laughs> It's exactly it, it, yeah. And the Justice Department and the regulators, they're not gonna wait five, seven years for enforcement actions. They're gonna move much faster. They have a lot better data, better technology. They probably already know what's going on wrong as we right. go through this crisis. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, I'd love to jump into your paper. I think that might be a good transition to the paper, which I found. I mean, it's a lot of what we've kind of been talking about a little bit. Actually, mm -hmm. before we get to that, so yep. we've talked a little bit on the pull side. I'd, I'd call that the pull side, that capstone of the pyramid. We, we kind of analyzed why the board's not pulling this up, why, why the board isn't carving the time out for themselves to have this time with, this, with the chief ethics and compliance officers. I'd love to talk about the other side of the fence. Like, what can we tell compliance folks who aren't getting that green light from the board, or they're not getting invited into the party from the board, or they're not getting invited into the pool, how can yeah. we encourage them to just put on their swimsuit and just jump in, aggressively go and try to make it happen? Because I think it's probably some balance of both, you know, both things need to occur at some level. It is. So some of it's structural. A lot of it, in fact, is who does compliance report to? And on the non-banking side, it's often the general counsel, if not the general counsel themselves. And on the financial side, it's often chief risk officer and I've always you might have seen some of my articles where I called CCO Cinderella because they're the stepchild of this general counsel the CCRO so they don't even have the authority to make budget decisions or how many who to hire etc so that's a structural flaw right, right then and there then the courage um, and the collaboration is important because it, you, you they're not mutually exclusive so Compliance and ethics folks do need to work with the business. They need to add value. Uh, I call it yes, if, as opposed to no, but, extent that if there's transactions or deals or new activity being proposed, compliance should help the business get to yes with conditions. And that's the yes, if, as opposed to automatically say no. But oftentimes, and you know, I, I knock our own industry folks ourselves, compliance officers historically have been attorneys and nothing wrong with attorneys. I've worked with them, worked for them and hired them, but it's a different skill set, and it's a matter of advocating for the firm or the business and getting to yes a lot faster when sometimes compliance has to say no, but have the credibility and the creativity to get to yes and still be within the spirit and the letter of the law. But Ultimately, if, if 
that doesn't reach the board and the CEO, then it's not all for naught, but then it's too, it's again too late because then there's probably some investigation, uh, remediation or enforcement action, probably all the above. By the, by the time the board says, what happened? Where was audit? Where was compliance? It should never get to that point. So Cinderella, the board is the fairy godmother, as I call it. And, and, and Cinderella is compliance and they shouldn't be in their rags. They should be in their gown with the, glass not the glass slipper. ceiling, but the glass <laughs> slipper. And, and, um, I love it. A good analogy. What's the pumpkin? I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of rats. There's a lot of rats. There's a lot of rats they got to get through. And maybe um, the, uh, no, never mind. I was going to talk about the ugly stepsisters, but I don't want to be. <laughs> we won't maybe. go there. Um, but so my point is we should have the right to go to the ball using this, this metaphor and um, become the prince or the princess, whatever the case may be, and talk to the board. That's really the point. And right. um, cause we, we can't go to the ball and just be in the woodwork. We have to have that courage, that storytelling, the things we've talked about before and the ability to not just catch the board's attention but reinforce that they want more. And, and then it's a dialogue. It's not just a report with a bunch of colors. It's them wanting more, them understanding compliance. And just going back to talking to the recruiters, I would say, what what does the board need? And we all want diversity and inclusion, but diversity and inclusion also should have the right compliance skill sets to understand and challenge management to know what good looks like because management's really good at telling the board don't worry about it and i always say i start worrying when someone says don't worry about that's a good one that's a good one um the um holding the board like i'm sorry holding management accountable is such a big deal Mm -hmm. um does that like, I guess what um, I'll get to How? In a over the next, yeah, like over the next 10 years, I think as light bulbs are starting to turn on about, wow, compliance really can be this strategic thing. I think we're going to see a separation of organizations that get it, that do that, mm-hmm. that empower these guys to run forward and to have those conversations. Uh, and those who kind of continue to look at it as a check the box thing, right? In that framework, I think a compliance person, a compliance officer or somebody in the compliance field who's able to build out that other axis of skill, which is that influence skill, that storytelling skill, that we're talking about a sales skill really, um, because you're selling some ideas. I think those people are gonna be in extremely high demand and within the compliance like community of individuals who are, you know, who work there, I think we're also gonna see a separation between those who are, who understand that in the compliance 3.0, it's beyond the spreadsheet and the pie graph to your point. It's to, I got to change. It's I'm playing a game of hearts and minds, not just to the board to get them to care about what I'm talking about, but also the people in the organization for them to care about being compliant and us staying out of trouble and being ethical and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes to like, so if someone's hearing this and they're like, man, Eric is spot on. I, I, when I get up in front of the board, I don't feel like I get the engagement. I don't feel like the answer to the question of, should I pay attention to this in the mind of the board is coming back with a yes. What would you tell them to do? Stand up like Toastmasters. I mean, what could they do to, to build out that storytelling thing? 
to be more sort of influential and persuasive. So you mean the compliance officers yeah. themselves? Yeah. One, they they obviously have to be prepared. Uh, they know what the story they're going to tell and and anticipate the questions that the board's going to ask because and over time, a number of quarters or even years, the board will be more educated and and will challenge the compliance officer just as much as as management's like what's being done about it or what do you anticipate? What keeps you up at night? But they they compliance folks. They can't drone. They can't get into yeah. the weeds. They have to explain. And I call it, it's like playing chess. You have to explain the strategy, see the board and anticipate the, the moves, but be able to have the credibility to answer the detailed questions around right. what, is, what is this pawn for? Or where's the bishop going to to go? And, and that's a skill that compliance officers need to, I think, do a better job is explain the chess board but be able to understand and anticipate where the pieces are going to be. Um, I, I, I like to explain things by metaphors. I'm sure I do. I love it. I love it. I think it's a, it's a phenomenal metaphor. And as I'm just kind of thinking through that, I think they're usually very adept at the pieces and knowing how the pieces yes. move and stuff like that. They're less adept at that higher level, high points. What's the summary of the story? Exactly. Why should I care about this? And I think part of the challenge is... I mean, look, compliance people, they're always just trying to keep their head above water. Many of them are looked at how you talked about. They don't get control of your budget or the resources. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to fight a fire with a squirt gun sometimes. Yes. Um, but if they can, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and fire hose is a perfect example, because I also call compliance officers as, as first responders that run into the burning building. Right. Um, because one that's courage and, and second, someone's got to do it. But most importantly, it's, it's not just heroic, but, but it's, it's got to get done. Uh, the, the building is, is the firm, it's the, the company. And uh, it takes a certain backbone and, and skill, what to do, what not to do, particularly because the board is sitting on the top floor, um, right. so to speak. And, um, so it, it does take certain skills, but those are not te technological. It's, it's no, they're, skills. they're human skills and exactly. you're probably using them. I think the point is you're probably using them with your spouse or with your neighbor already or with your kids. Cause you would get, yes. you know, getting someone to do something without force is all influences, right? So Absolutely. you're doing it everywhere else, bring it into this thing. And I think, you know, if I could just add on to that part of the challenge for folks is they get so, we help folks from time to time who client, not client, if they have a board presentation, help them to put a little plan together and like, how would you tell this as a story? Um, and what I find is that they're nervous. Maybe they don't like public speaking. You're talking to the big, you know, the big board and you know, they're, I just got to get, get my numbers outright. I think though, if we can tap into the natural empathy, which I think is a little bit overweighted in a good way within the ethics and compliance field and tap into those natural I mean, most ethics and compliance folks that I talk to, they make connections with people really quickly. Like I said, they really care. Yes. They lead with empathy a lot of the times. Those mm -hmm. are all skills on the influence side of the house that you need to be bringing into this conversation with the board, I think, because totally. in, order for me to under, in, in order for me to tell something to you that you're going to pay attention to, I have to understand what's important to you. And I, I have to understand what you care about. You know what I'm saying? So part yes. of that in, interaction, I mean, we many times just assume that we know what the board cares about, or we assume that we know what the board doesn't care about. And many times we have mm -hmm. a very 
you know, a stark misconception about that. And I think a little bit of that, uh, bringing some of that natural, you know, to your point, the humanity into those discussions and recognize that it's just some person sitting across the table who understands that they're at a very high level, that they don't know all the ins and outs and all the details of the organization and that, and that it's your job to let them know what they should care about. It just kind of helps to reframe the interaction to a point that it can just naturally lead to more effectiveness, you know? Yes. And the starting point is compliance actually does add strategic value. And 100%. all my conversations, sadly, with recruiters, board members, uh, management, uh, they often say, well, how does compliance add value? And therefore, why should they talk to the board? And that's a sad story if you think about it. Um, yeah, it's super sad. And, and that's why I use the word enlightened because preserving reputation adds strategic value. Not having enforcement actions or sp spending millions, billions on monitors and, and, and litigation and, and uh, technology for that matter adds strategic value. And, and oftentimes it's the compliance officer because they're, they see the chessboard. The another analogy is the compliance officer is the catcher behind the plate. They see the full field, they're involved in every play, whereas everyone else has a specialty. They, they play left field, they yeah, pitch right. the ball. The catcher sees the full uh, field of play. We're the, we're the catcher. And uh, in that sense, we can set the tone for the board, uh, the, who are the owners, if you was actually shareholders, but you know what I mean in terms of the yeah, board. Yeah. For them, they represent the them. Yes, and so therefore, it's how do we brand ourselves uh, to demonstrate we add value. Now, in my case, I say I re-engineer compliance programs to enable growth. Growth, that's a good thing. But yeah. it takes re-engineering compliance programs, going back to the change manager, because change is every day and re-engineering sometimes is more dramatic than needed. As so needed. I love that. I love that enabling, enabling growth through, I don't know, Whatever you said sounded a lot better than I, I was about to butcher it, but I love the <laughs> concept behind it because to your point, um, those perimeters on the side of a field, yes, outline of a field is what allows all that match that magic to happen on a field. Imagine trying to watch a soccer game uh, with there was no there's no field lines. How would you yes. even watch it? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like right. those guidelines are what allow for that magic to happen, right? Like you need a canvas to create art because that canvas has a perimeter. What are you gonna do? Just you know what I'm saying? Agreed. Like those limitations are actually enablers. And I think part of what our challenge is here, all right, I'm just going to say it. Like there's a lot of old school thinking at the board level, obviously, because these people were raised in different time periods, mm -hmm. right? I mean, and there's so many vestigial holdovers in those yes. frameworks and in those mentalities that are preventing the efficacy of these groups that can really enable an organization to accelerate faster, right? If compliance is this vascular system, well, right. you need to have a healthy vascular system to have a healthy body, right? And totally. I just, I just, I ask this question all the time. You know, I talk about this all the time. It just blows my mind how a board member cannot see, man, we need to have a really strong culture. I need to have, you know, my organization is just a bunch of people who decide to volunteer to show up every single day. I need mm -hmm. to equip them with the right tools, the right, you know, guidelines and so forth for them to really be able to run fast. I just don't understand how people don't see the connection between culture, which is the only sustainable competitive advantage in business, at least from my standpoint. Yep. They don't see the connection between culture and the other side of the coin, which is compliance, guidance, code of conduct, and all that stuff. I just, it, it, it boggles my mind. I don't understand it. And the, 
the, the human body metaphor is the right one because there's the heart, which is the, and mind, and you need both. That's the culture. Then right. the circulatory system in many ways and the organs need to be nourished. And in that sense, compliance right. through its network of not just compliance officers, but ops, finance, even the business, they need to have clear roles and responsibilities so that the body as it should, and it, it, amazing how it does, works in sync. And if, if the finger gets cut uh, or worse, you start hemorrhaging or the body starts breaking down, it's no different than a corporate body. And people don't understand that. And that's this type of storytelling that I like to do with the board and yes. they get it right away because it resonates with them right away. Yeah, it's such a powerful tool. And that's why people use metaphors and storytelling because you can shortcut yes. to the answer. You can shortcut to the feeling or you can shortcut to the concept. And more of that in these kind of conversations, again, I've seen some of these that are brutal. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you, you have too, where it's just like just reading numbers and everyone's looking at their phone or everyone's totally disengaged. Right. And it's like, what am I even doing here? This is a way, yeah. you know, I lost sleep last night for this. This is stupid, you know? It's, but exactly. if we can, but everyone is influenceable to your point, if we know, if we have the uh, Rosetta Stone, which is an understanding that a fully actualized culture can enable the people to pursue the organization's mission more effectively, thus driving all the things that the board cares about, that seems like a pretty easy connection to make. I get that it's not like a direct, simple machine of like a lever or like mm -hmm. a pulley, right? You pull the string and the bucket goes up. Like right. it's not that simple, but again, these guys, usually if you, if you make it to a board level, you're not like a bumbling idiot. You know what I'm saying? No. Like. That's a sim pretty simple connection to make. And I just, I just want to be pushing the people that are part of our community to just get a, get a little bit, you know, maybe aggressive is the, the wrong word, but get a little bit more bold and really try to push that envelope and try to make them understand why they should care because they're, they absolutely care at some level. There's probably just some connection they haven't made or there's probably mm -hmm. some old school thinking that, that they're still plagued with where they don't see the opportunity that's in front of them takes great listening skills for one thing. So it's not just how well one articulates, but uh, I had the privilege of sitting in full board meetings or audit or risk committee meetings. And one, they can be brutal because it's all the presenters before me that would just read every bullet on every slide, yes. every page. Oh, yeah. um, I'm talking a bit out of school, but at the same time, it's listening to the dialogue that the board has with these other presenters, because yep. then by the time it comes to you, you can actually synthesize yes. that dialogue for the last three, four hours of that board meeting into very succinct, articulate, enlightening points that takes the best of that dialogue from before into important action points. Um, and that's another skill. My wife says I don't listen well enough. Sometimes my staff says the same thing, but <laughs> it's critical. It's critical that you have the listening skills, kind of sit back, get the sense of the mood, but more importantly, the pulse of the dialogue. Um, and, and yeah, that, there's a lot, you know, if you're playing poker, I think maybe this is a good, a good analogy. If you're playing poker, just because you're not in that hand, if you've already folded, still learn a ton about what this guy's tell is what True. this guy cares about how does this guy bet like that's not like a time of eyes closed you're still right. soaking up information and to your point if you're pushed to the end of that conversation and you're you know you have the opportunity which again i kind of encourage people to push for get into that that board meeting to get some of the benefits that we're exactly talking about 
but you can start to see, well, like what kind of questions does this board, board member always ask? What does this guy seem to really care about? And if you can pull some of those things together, not only does it make you sound better when you're talking to incorporate right. something from safety or something from finance into what you're, you're talking about to, so they, they can see the, the added facets to the shape, but it also makes you more influential. If yes. you can say, hey, you know, hey, Carol, you're, you're probably gonna wanna tune into this because I heard you ask, you know, you heard this person ask 10 mm -hmm. questions about downside risk and they're obviously somebody who's got a nose for risk. Well, then you need to speak to them and speak their language. And I think yes. after a couple, of, a couple of these iterations, a couple of these presentations in front of folks, if you show that kind of consistent thoughtfulness, they're very quickly gonna start to see like, how have I not looked at this before? How, how have I not seen this connection? And then you're gonna get that overcorrection from the board in terms of them being like, like once the light bulb turns on, the room seems very bright because they're yes. overcompensating for all the darkness they've been in for all this time. So there's a lot of opportunity to push there. Yes, and it becomes a conversation, not a just a presentation. And, yes, which is the key. And because oftentimes you do see whether it's management or the board looking at their phone while pre presentations are not only being made, but decisions are actually being proposed. So it's a little scary if you think about it, is that they're multitasking and then they still approve whatever you're proposing. Yeah, sounds good. Next. <laughs> exactly. It happens all the time. It's so true. Yes. Um, so we're getting toward the end here. There's a lot of stuff I had written down to talk to you about that we didn't really get to. I'd like to talk about a few things though. Sure. Um, I'd like to talk about, first of all, this blurring of the lines because there's so much in it. Mm -hmm. um, let me try to summarize the kind of concept and then you, um, you know, correct me and tell me how, how off base I was. But I think the, the issue is that as technology has advanced, as there's been a sort of consolidation across industries within particular organizations, right? Which is only accelerated in the sort of internet age, right? We're yes. running into this situation where this line between, like where there used to be sort of a Chinese wall, so to speak, between banking and commerce because of all mm -hmm. the stuff that happened in the industrial revolution in the early 1900s and stuff like that, where those things are starting to be you know, Lord. that wall is starting to disintegrate. Yes. And, you, you know, maybe an example of it, and I guess what we're talking, what we're kind of talking about are the risks, the inherent risks that can come out of a true merging or a deeper sort of integration of these two different sort of parts of our mm -hmm. economy that had previously been held separate. Spot on. And I'll try to pull together a lot of what we've discussed already. So, one, the lines are blurrier and the whole purpose of the separation, at least in the US between banking and commerce is on the banking side, you have taxpayer funded deposit insurance to help protect the mom and pop, so to speak. And it was the history of these firms engaging in risky non-banking activities, including securities activities that ultimately drag the uh, innocent mom and pop down the whirlpool of, of just reputational damage, if right. not just or worse. So it's become blurrier because one, we've been in an age of deregulation. Second, technology and other firms, whether it be cryptocurrency um, or even things like PayPal, yeah. um, Amazon, Google Pay, et cetera, is it a bank? Right. Uh, is it a technology company? Is, does it sell groceries or kind of all the above? And regulators are encouraging that now for two reasons. One, 
it's it's demystifying the mystery of cryptocurrency. That's one. Second is it's trying to rein in and establish rules of the game because right. what, what is do they know what game they're playing? Going back to the board, mm-hmm. which game are we playing, and therefore which rules do we have to to follow? So that blurring is important to watch. Second, the technology going back to the the speed of reputational damage is very important, particularly because some of these technology enablers or bridges between banking and commerce are the very companies that are controlling information. So it's not just a monopoly of money, the the old JP Morgans from the monopoly game or Carnegie's, but it's the the Bezos, the Facebook, uh, the Twitters of the world that can also control information. So just like the cliche, information is power. That's incredibly powerful. And therefore, if the risks are unknown because the information is controlled by a small group of companies right. that are controlling right. money right, and controlling industry that are critical to uh, the infrastructure. You'll read the headlines of the cyber attacks of critical infrastructure companies. It's not just yes. the, it's the critical infrastructure. And, and, and where does compliance fit into all this? Business management needs to be accountable to be compliant and ethical. That's where it starts. And then you've got the Cinderella, going back to Cinderella, raising their hand, escalating to the board when they can and 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 they must to the yeah. board that something's not right here in a very dynamic environment. Uh, hopefully I've pulled together yeah, everything you totally, we've discussed. You totally did. There were so many interesting pieces of that. And I'm I'm looking forward to your book, um, Declaration of Independence. Okay. I want to hear a little bit about that. Um, but if you have a couple of more minutes, sure. I'd let's uh, I want to dive into that. I found, you know, you you brought up the 2008 DOJ thing where they're kind of, maybe just tell us about that. And they're, they kind of came up with three, three reasons as to why they shouldn't move forward. But then number three was about kind of data handling and, and analytics. So maybe just give us a little rundown of that, if you don't mind. Just to be clear, when you say 2008 DOJ thing. Yeah, so in 2008, the DOJ explored whether banking and commerce should converge. And uh, they came up with three yeah. reasons why they shouldn't. One yeah. was about like ownership ties. One was about kind of like arbing arbitrage, you know, kind of arbing, uh, you know, deposit insurance. And then the other one was about, you know, uh, information burden. And they said that three, inform- the information burden of this, how I read it and understood it, which I, which could be wrong. But, you know, these are three kind of risks. Number three in and of itself is big enough to say these should not converge because the information burden was too high. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, number three really pulls together one and two, it's a culmination really of, okay. of the two. So the activity, the underlying activity on the non-banking side is still too risky for the deposit insurance mom and pop. But now the speed of information and the type of information and then how to capture it um, is the challenge going forward because you can have a lot of information going back to telling the board, but how do we know that we're telling the board accurate information that goes yeah, to point. the integrity of the data? And so you've got this bridge, this monopoly, you've got non-banking activities, whether it be healthcare and privacy as one big area of risk, energy and other companies that are, how do they know they're bribing or not uh, until it's too late? Um, And then you've got banks that control 
and cut across every single industry, everything that we do, that's a really dangerous combination if you think about it. Um, but if it's harnessed correctly by the right people, not just compliance, but compliance is in the middle of it, the catcher, if you will, of the mm -hmm. baseball game, it can be channeled correctly and responsibly and profitably. So that's the goal. It is achievable if the hubris isn't there, if the roles are clear, the accountability is there. And my book talks about how to make management more accountable. That because there's so much value in that, right? Like if you can get that green light from the board to hold management accountable and you're given that mandate and you can maintain sort of some semblance of uh, collaboration with these folks, there's so much magic that can come from it because you can start focusing on the right risk and not just, Absolutely. you know, just playing whack-a-mole with whatever pops up, you know? Right, exactly. It's, a, it's anticipating where that mole is going to end up when you're whacking, right. so to speak. So maybe we can come and do another episode together when your book comes out, because I happy to do that. I, I want to. We didn't get a chance to get into the compliance hexagon, which I love. I love that shape, or you know, I the love the, the multifacets of it. I mean, so much of what we were talking about is the multifaceted nature of compliance and what that what that potential is. And as you look at those six different sort of pieces of a mandate or whatever, yes. it really seems to, in my mind, capture the the three dimensionality of what our impact needs to be beyond just yep. words on a page, but actually changing hearts and minds. Well said, very well said, and happy to do so. Absolutely. So, uh, Eric, thank you so much for coming on. This was awesome. I have dozens of, it's like every single, every single thing you said uh, was <laughs> profound. So um, tell your wife that if she, you know, when, when you speak so much profound wisdom, don't have to worry about listening, okay? <laughs> I will, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where can people find you, Eric? On LinkedIn. Um, and I'm, I just set up a publishing company. So, oh, cool. Um, yeah, it's called Ethical Pebbles. So I thought you'd appreciate that. I love and, that. Uh, it's still that. in a nascent stage, but it's fun. I'm having a good time. Good, man. Well, I can tell that you're so passionate about it. I thank you for coming on today. Thank you for thank you. your continued leadership in this thing. And we are at an exciting time with compliance. Like we are, we're like explorers. We're right on the frontier of this thing and totally. we can all determine where, where it goes. We're not going to be passengers on this journey. We're going to be driving it. And I just, I'm thankful to know people like you who are out in the front of the, uh, the wagon train pushing us forward. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. It's, I really respect everything that you guys are doing. <laughs>